0: Yeah. Thanks, Fred. And uh, Fred, maybe I can. Well, I can't see anybody else's chat. If you do have a message for me, I can see yours. But uh, for those attendees who managed to turn up, thank you very much for taking the time to to uh, uh, to leave your coronavirus-infected uh, workplaces and learn about probability plotting. And when I say learn about probability plotting, it's uh, it's just a, an overview of some high level techniques, but more importantly, where things can go wrong. Uh, So my next slide was supposed to be a general question about what I was asking all attendees, what is probability plotting? Um, Because I can't see your chats or your responses, this might be a little bit of a challenging, open general question to ask and answer, but um, I often see probability plotting interpreted as uh, as an activity which is intended for different things. Uh, depending on who you speak to, probability plotting is is line fitting, it is statistical analysis, it is uh, part of reliability analysis, so on and so forth. So let's just leave that as an open question for right now. And let's just go into a slightly different, well, let's look at this from a slightly different perspective. I'm gonna start with pointing out that human beings are good at identifying straight lines and things. So just bear with me in terms of um, where this is heading. We as human beings are really good at identifying patterns and the easiest pattern to identify is a straight line. So if we have points in a straight line or dots in a straight line, we are really, really good at uh, working out or being able to see if that line is really, really straight or true. And some of us are really so, so good that if the line bends, we can even have a good estimate at what the deviation is away from what is straight. Some people might be able to say, this is this angle is around 12 degrees, for example. So human beings are really good at identifying straight lines and things, but we are bad at identifying different curves. So if we go back to our two straight lines, it's really easy for us to see deviation away from straightness. But have a look at this curve. Can anyone see anything different between, or can anyone see this curve change at all from one region to the other? And it's very difficult for us to be able to do this, especially in a quantifiable way. And this example, we actually have two curves here. One, one part of the curve is based on a radius, of, uh, a circular arc with a radius of three. Well, the other is both in a circular arc of radius of four and that's very hard for us to pick up because we are not good at identifying different curves so let's just understand uh, let's just just put put that conversation on hold for a minute and let's go to some, let's look at what happens when we do reliability testing so we typically have some sort of um, random variable we're investigating which is Often time to failure, and we might do some tests or get field data, or just somehow observe the random process that is failure. When we do, we get a bunch of data points. In this case, we have a hundred data points, and what we want to do with these data points is analyze them to try and understand the nature of the of the random process which is governing where these lie for a time to failure. We can't. Uh, we can't know with absolute certainty when failure will occur but it's it's very important to understand the nature of that uncertainty for reliability questions and decision making and so what we can do though is do some a non-parametric analysis and we might create a histogram based on this data and you can see there's sort of a bellish shape here everyone knows what the bell curve is but we might say this looks roughly like a normal distribution, or this might look like a Weibull distribution. In this case, this Weibull distribution over here is a shape parameter of 5.28. And for those of you who aren't aware of what these distribution thingies are, all distributions are are, uh, are essentially sets or structures which allocate probability to certain outcomes. So in, this, in these two curves that look like bells, they're it, essentially saying, the values that are closer to the values that are closer to the centre of the um, uh, of the bell shape are more likely to occur. So let's go back to our data points, our 100 data points, and when we come to analysis, we typically label them from smallest to largest because that allows us to rank them and create a, another question, another um, a chart. In this case we can create an approximation of what we call the cumulative distribution function, which essentially tells us the fraction of things that are, that have failed with respect to usage. And here are our two shaded curves that, uh, uh, that are uh, equivalent to those bell curves we just saw. And it's very hard to see, but you can, you can sort of see that the CDF curve is much better at creating a smoothish line than our histograms were. You could see the histogram look, look like, uh, which, uh, which is teeth though, high, some high columns, some low columns. It's very hard to discern the underlying distribution based on those columns. So the CDF is typically what we prefer to use. And what we can then do after this is we can scale our chart in a particular way and you can see you applied a really weird scale on our y-axis a vertical axis of CDF. And we, in this case, we've created a logarithmic scale on the the horizontal axis and we do this because if the data, uh, at least in this particular scenario, because if the data creates a straight line we can prove mathematically or statistically that this is uh, equivalent to the random nature of in this case a Weibull distribution. One of those example probability distributions we looked at previously. So we might be able to look at this and say, you know what? This data is pretty straight. So therefore the Weibull distribution is a more correctly candidate probability distribution to describe our our underlying random uh, random process. And so this weird chart with these weird axes are often plotted on papers and we call them Weibull distribution plotting papers. And these are very useful before we had computers and other things, which could do this all automatically could, um, because it allowed you to do this by hand. And depending on which distribution you were trying to investigate, you'd have a different sort of probability plotting paper. And this scaled uh, paper or scaled set of axes uh, allows us to investigate if the data points are described by a normal distribution, the bell curve, and the log normal distribution is another probability distribution, and it too has its own probability plotting paper. So let's go back to our Weibull distribution plotting paper with our data points that seemed to create a straight line. Now, let's use these same data points and put them on a log normal distribution plot probability plotting paper. And in this case, I hope you can agree with me that this creates a curved line. So we can conclude, relatively comfortably that the log normal distribution is not a good candidate probability distribution for our random process. But let's see what happens when we put our data on the normal distribution probability plotting paper. And you can see this also creates a relatively straight line. So this is also a good fit or more correctly, a candidate probability distribution for our, underlo- for our random process. Now you can see here that data can create straight lines or what appears to be straight lines on different axes or different probability plotting papers. So we might have at certain levels uh, equally valid candidates and it shouldn't be surprising because the Weibull distribution does approximate the normal distribution in certain circumstances. And this is the heart of probability plotting. We try and put our data onto axes um, that, uh, that if, uh, if the underlying distribution is true or, or is a good, uh, good model for what's happening, we tend to see straight lines. So I haven't heard anything from you, Fred, yet, but do we have any questions that, we, that people are asking or is this uh, so boring and so basic for our audience that uh, it seems to make sense?
1: No, I haven't seen anything yet, um, um, so no, and no, it makes, and what you're talking
0: about makes sense to me too, so yeah, drive on. No worries. Please, uh, notwithstanding, that, um, it seems like our computers are also self-isolating within this, uh, with this with this webinar software for maybe for due to coronavirus, so please try not uh, if there's any questions, please don't hesitate to ask Fred and he'll get them to me one way or another. So probability plotting to answer that question that we talked about up front is a graphical technique for comparing two data sets. Um, This is a very technical term because what this actually means is we want to compare one empirical data set or typically we want to compare one empirical data set, what we observe through a test or field data with a theoretical data set, which is a log normal distribution, viable distribution or normal distribution set of random variables and we scale different plotting papers for specific probability distributions. And as we just talked about, if the plotted data creates a straight line, it suggests that the underlying random process is described by that specific probability distribution. So, and there's a ton more uh, plotting papers out there than the three we just talked about. These are the most most popular. Uh, And of those three, the most popular of the most popular is the Weibull distribution. But in short, regardless of which paper you're using, which probability distribution it aligns with, it has a particular scale for the reliability of the CDF and the random variable. And so if you get that straight line, we can conclude with some level of assurance that that probability distribution is going to do a good job of understanding our failure process. And if we have a curved line, we can uh, potentially exclude this probability distribution from further consideration. As I said, the most popular is the Weibull distribution probability plotting paper. And we'll explore why that is in a minute or later on in this webinar. And really good thing about most probability plotting papers is that we're able to estimate the parameters directly from our probability plot. What are our parameters? They're They're the numbers that define the specific nature of our probability distribution. So let's look at our Weibull distribution probability plotting paper in greater detail. And you can see an example here. The vertical axis uh, is uh, the cumulative cumulative distribution function expressed as a percentage. It's a pretty weird shape. We can go through the mathematics in a different conversation, but you can see that uh, down the bottom around the 1.5, 0.3, percent marks, you'll see that there is a, it is a very, very, very small scale. In the middle, lower in the 50% mark, you can see that there's 10% deviation, which doesn't take up much vertical displacement on the paper. The usage metrics, which you put down here, which could be cycles or distance or time to failure, um, the, uh, is out, is, uh, is, 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 expressed in terms of the logarithmic scale. Now I can see a question coming through for the y-axis. The the answer to the question about the mathematical approach is that the y-axis is the natural logarithm of the negative of the natural logarithm of one minus the CDF. So that's how we get this really weird scale. So it is sort of a log of a log, but it's important to be the logar- important to note that it's a natural logarithm of the negative of the natural logarithm of the one minus the CDF. And the next thing we add to our plotting paper is this stuff up here. These numbers on the top of our paper are used to estimate the Weibull distribution shape parameter, which sort of describes what that shape looks like. And it can be a bell curve, it can be flatter, it can be, um, it can be, uh, it, it, it can be uh, much like the exponential distribution. It can be like the, uh, the, the gamma distribution, so on and so forth. And we'll go to how we use these numbers in a minute. And we have this line here, which helps us estimate the Weibull scale parameter. Now, for other probability distribution plotting papers, the y-axis, the CDF scale, is a function of the uh, of the CDF function itself. For the normal distribution, for those of you who are aware of it it's based on the inverse standard normal distribution function. So I can see another question coming through. I need to make my chart a bit bigger. Uh, uh, So the question is, does having a straight line of data points for any probability distribution make the parameter estimation easier? And is that one of the major reasons that we prefer a straight line distribution? Well, to go back, if the line is not straight, the first thing it suggests is the probability distribution associated with that plotting paper is not a good model. is does not describe the failure process anymore. So it's not, we don't want straight lines because they're good at helping us helping us estimate parameters, even though that is the case. We're interested in a straight line because that tells us if the probability distribution is a good fit in the first place. And if it's not a good fit, you see that curved line and you in principle uh, exclude that probability, probability distribution from further consideration so but that's a really good question it's uh, really important to understand the thing we want is that straight line because statistically it means that it, it in a way uh, at least partly validates that probability distribution so if we look at our our, our um, paper uh, if we look at our paper here why aren't you just moving forward there we go this is all about the slope of our line and if we can see that slopes in this region indicate what we call an increasing hazard rate, things are wearing out. Slopes in this region indicate a decreasing hazard rate or things are wearing in. And we'll, again, we'll come back to this bit in the middle, in a minute, but you can see that the line that that sort of demarks or demarcates these two regions is the line associated with a shape parameter of one. And we're going to go through an example shortly. So here's our probability plotting paper we've labelled the horizontal axis and we've done some reliability test, which is our test we ran before, and we plot it on this chart and this is what it looks like. So if we run a straight line through here, uh, through our our data points, we then essentially move this this line or create a parallel line which goes through what we call the estimation point over here. And where our parallel line crosses with the top of our paper, uh, that point is then correlates with the numbers on top of our paper for us to get an estimate of the shape parameter. In this case, uh, this this plotting paper suggests that beta, which is a shape parameter for our Weibull distribution is approximately five. The next thing we need to do is go back to that blue line we just talked about, plot across to the intersection of our line of best fit, then then we draw a line straight down, and this gives us the second parameter of our Weibull distribution which in this case is ETA. So with these two parameters we, uh, this, this plotting paper which suggests that the uh, Weibull distribution is a good fit if you agree that the data follows a straight line or creates a straight line. Now we have the parameters for what we think is the best Weibull distribution to describe our data and so this is the secondary benefit of having straight lines and most plotting papers allow us to uh, estimate these parameters directly. So let's go back to our our, number, our, uh, our raw data, which is the same raw data we we talked about earlier. Here's our histogram, and let's see what the Weibull distribution with a shape parameter of two and a scale parameter of five, uh, sorry, other way around, shape parameter of five and scale parameter of two looks like. And you can see that this seems to be a relatively good fit but you can also see that the histogram is not really easy for us visually to uh, to make a good subjective assessment about whether uh, our random variables or so random data points um, match our smooth probability density function, our bell curves if you like. So the aim of probability plotting paper PLOP sorry, the the rationale of probability plotting papers or the tenant is that firstly, human beings are good at seeing lines. Secondly, human beings are really good at seeing straight lines. And thirdly, if we're able to find that there's a mathematical or statistical relationship between the straight line of a CDF in a particular scaled way, we can then make an an assessment about the validity of the underlying probability distribution. So that is in essence, what. Uh, what probability plotting is all about. So we use the Weibull distribution probability plotting paper because it can mimic a large range of probability distributions. You can see that in our example up front, it seemed like uh, a set of data which which was well described by the normal distribution was also really well described by the Weibull distribution. And we can immediately tell if the failure rate is increasing, constant or decreasing you might recall that we talked about uh, the shape parameter. If the shape parameter is greater than one, we know things are wearing out. And the shape parameter in our little example we just looked at was five. So we know that things are wearing out. And every time you see a bell curve which describes times to failure, we, um, uh, we know that the underlying process is wear out. Okay, and the last thing Last reason we want to use, uh, we like using Weibull distribution probability plotting paper, is we can estimate parameters really, really easily. Uh, okay, so I was wondering if there is a uh, another question coming through. I see one. This, is, sorry, Fred. It appears as if my chat window doesn't automatically scroll. The audience question: What is the minimum data points needed to get a good estimation? And I think Fred, you, you suggested 20 is a bare minimum. I'm actually going to come back to that because it's a good question, and later on in the webinar we actually look at the heart of that question, which is how certain can we be of a certain uh, of any conclusion uh, based on the number of data points we have. So it's a really good question, and I'm going to deal with it more in greater detail later on. So. Ordinarily, um, there are eight steps to probability plotting and they are all subject of a specific lesson which we're not gonna go through right now. There's a certain number of steps, there's a certain number of uh, things you need to need to consider um, when you, when you uh, go through probability plotting by hand at least. And that is a subject of another lesson. It essentially teaches you how to go about the process of using your data to create those dots on probability plotting. <clears throat> okay, so the next, so in, in, a, in a separate lesson I run, we go through and we create an example probability plot based on data and here is that data here. So the, if you were to sit through that lesson, uh, the last, last slide, the last thing you would do would be create this data point, the, uh, sorry, this probability plot, and we would use it to estimate that our shape parameter of, or beta for our Weibull distribution is about 1.6 and our scale parameter is 0.92. And again, the probab- a probability distribution is simply a structure or a framework which assigns probability to certain random variable values. So if we know the probability distribution, we can ascertain or understand or at least uh, have some inkling about the nature of failure. When are things more likely to occur? How many things do I expect to fail within the warranty period at what stage will five percent of my fleet have failed so on and so forth now this so far uh we have we have talked about um we we've talked about straight uh, lines but before uh, but be, uh, in the next section we're going to be talking about having multiple straight lines, which sounds a little bit antithetical, but we're going to go there anyway. Um, I see that someone has suggested too that uh, uh, wh- uh, why, uh, why is the horizontal line at 60%, so that blue line. Now, it's a really, really good question. The reason why that blue line is at 63% to be exact is that uh, it just so happens that it's uh, that the Weibull distribution, the equation for a Weibull distribution, regardless of the parameters involved. They all happen to pass the CDF specifically happens to pass through the scale parameter value at 63%, and that's really really useful. So regardless of the um, uh, regardless of of the uh, of the uh, the shape parameter, they will always go through the the straight line will always go through this line of 60 three percent so what that means is that mathematically we just need to find that intercept plot straight down and we'll get the uh, shape uh, sorry the scale parameter uh, estimate so the another question is going back to estimating our shape parameter beta how do we determine the y-axis intercept to move the parallel line to again that's a really good question and the we always move that back to what we call the estimation point which is right here where that blue line we just talked about hits the Y axis. That's, that's called the estimation point. So we create that parallel line which passes through that estimation point and when that line intersects with the, um, with the uh, top of our probability plotting paper, uh, we can then estimate directly what the shape parameter is. So I'm just gonna quickly try and scroll and see if there's any more uh, questions. And uh, no one talked about uh, uh, how you can use Y Bayes, which is a different approach when you use Bayes in analysis. Well, I probably won't talk about that too much in this webinar uh, for time, uh, timing, uh, time restrictions, due to time restrictions, sorry. But yes, it is an approach where you can use a, a essentially a subjective or prior information about the underlying uh, parameter values to essentially drive down the, the amount of information you need to make a conclusion about anything. But again, that'd probably be the subject of another lesson. Uh, another question is, in addition, addition to the characteristic, characteristic life, could we obtain the mean time to failure, 50% failure from the Weibull plot? The exponential, the MTTF is the same as ETA, does the plot confirm this? So the question is actually got a, it's a really good question but there's a slight inconsistency. The mean time to failure for the Weibull distribution is not when uh, the 50% of our things have failed. The, uh, again, again in the lesson I would would cover where we talk about the probability plotting, it's it's an equation you use, you substitute in the beta and eta values, uh, and it gives you the mean. What you're talking about for the uh, time to failure of 50% of your items is the median. And you can estimate that directly from from the uh, from your plot. So excuse my uh, not very accurate line, uh, drawing, but let's just say, um, I'm gonna erase, erase that ink. But if I, um, if I just circle here 50% on the y-axis, I can then draw a line straight across my 50% line. Well, that's not very straight. I hope you can see what I'm trying to do though. And where it intersects our line of best fit, we go straight down and this point down here, is where we would estimate our 50%, 50% of our things to have failed. So I apologise for those lines not being very straight, but hopefully you get the idea. So for the exponential distribution, the MTTF is the same as ETA, which is not the time to uh, time at which you expect 50% of your things to have failed. But if you uh, if you uh, have picked up on something thus, thus far, when we have a, a hazard rate or a shape parameter of one. That is equivalent to the exponential distribution in which case um, eta becomes the mean time to failure for the exponential case only so hopefully that, that's a long-winded answer uh, solves that question. Another question is which points to be joined if I join first and last points the slope changes and here you see a problem with uh, with uh, probability plotting essentially it's objective, subjective Sorry. Uh, the line of best fit can change from person to person. Uh, and software can, is one way of getting around this. Regression analysis can cre- you know, help you create that line. Another approach is a maximum likelihood estimate. But we'll, we'll, cu- we'll get to that in a, in a minute actually. It's a really good question for us to, uh, for us to, uh, to hold for, because I have some material which we'll hopefully cover off on that. So let's have a look at the next bit where, we talk to, where I talked about having potentially more than one failure mode on one chart. So let's have a look at this data here. Now, you might say, okay, this doesn't create straight one single straight line, and you're right. In this case, it might, you might be able to argue that it creates three straight lines. And in this, in each, in each case, each straight line has its own shape parameter estimate. So the, the, the shape, straight line on the bottom left-hand side has a shape parameter of 0.4, which suggests that the thing is wearing in the product is wearing in and then it moves into a a region where the shape parameter is one which means it implies it has a constant hazard rate. And you can see that the thing is starting your product, your system is starting to wear out as it transitions from the second one to the second straight line to the third straight line. So around about there is where wear out at least based on the assumption that these straight lines are valid. This is this is where wear out starts to be your dominant form of failure. So you can then sort of potentially uh, allocate or break down your Weibull plot directly into three different failure modes. And what this allows us to do is align them with the bathtub curve, the classical bathtub curve, or more correctly, the weird and wonky bathtub curve that would um, that would uh, that would then uh, uh, that would be more likely to describe the failure characteristics of your system. But you should be able to see at least from a very high level, if wear out is starting to occur, if your probable probability plot is starting to have a higher and higher gradient. So let's go to let's look at this in a bit uh, in a bit greater detail. And I want you to not start looking for things that aren't there. So what I'm going to do now is actually create a system a system which has three series compo- uh, components. And this is going to represent this system with this basic uh, fault tree diagram here. And these three components. So the, the, what that means is that the system will fail whenever. Uh, One of your uh, components fails, and so this one over here, this component over here, it wears in or experiences infant mortality, and this one here has a constant hazard rate, and this one here wears out. So let's go, let's simulate the failures of this system, and see what happens with respect to our bathtub curve. So this is the actual bathtub curve for this system. You can see how, on the left-hand side, the components that is wearing in dominates failures, the component in the middle over here dominates failures and then the one that wears out, it starts to dominate failures over here because this is our hazard rate, the bathtub curve, the rate at which things fail. And we also know um, that for virtually all infant mortality or wear in scenarios, the shape parameter or the slope of this curve is always between 0.3 and 0.5, whether it be small satellites, reliability growth testing, maintenance induced failures, it is always, between 0.3 and 0.5 typically 0.4. Now let's simulate the failures for this system and these red dots over here which hopefully you can see represent um, a single failure for our system and you can see that our system is almost exclusively failing in region one because the whole bathtub curve the whole hazard rate curve is very relatively high. So what happens if we compare this bathtub curve with a with a lower rate but the same shape, so essentially it's going to move this entire shape down, so that um, we so that we see what happens to the to the failures that this this causes. And as you might not necessarily intuitively expect, even though we have the same shape, because it's a, at a lower magnitude, our system is more likely to get through the maintenance induced failures or the infant mortality or the wear in region of our hazard rate curve. And they start to fail in what you might argue is more the region two part of the bathtub curve. So let's do this again. Let's actually compare this um, with a, a the same shape, but the magnitude is driven down further. And the failures in this case are starting to occur on the upswing the back end of the bathtub curve so we have three bathtub curves each of them have the same shape but depending on the overall magnitude of these bathtub curves or the uh, or or, or the sort of average hazard rate for lack of a better term it really drives which region your system's going to fail in just because you have a bathtub curve which has three regions doesn't mean your system's going to actually experience a lot of failures in, in all of those regions. So. Let's just take this uh, information, look at it in greater detail. For our first scenario, over half of our failures were from region one. In our second scenario with the same shape bathtub curve driven down a little bit, almost all of our uh, failures were driven by region two. And in this one over here, over half of our failures were driven by re, uh, region three. So the wear out uh, fa- failure mode. So this is all simulated, this is in a way, actual data. This is what we actually get or we actually observe when we have these particular bathtub curves. So of these particular failure breakdowns, the bits where there's wear out, they're the things that we can address through things like preventive maintenance. You can do servicing before things start to wear out uh, to address issues with your system. So let's see what the Weibull plots for all our failures for each different scenario looks like. So you can see that um, on the left hand side, as you would expect, failures are occurring earlier because, because this is for the hazard rate curve which has the highest magnitude. And this is the one where we experience mostly region one failures. Well, the second and third ones though, even though there is distinct difference in the nature of failures, one is primarily region two or constant hazard rate failures, the other one is, is uh, the majority of failures are due to wear out, they have relatively similar slopes. If we do the shape parameter analysis in this case, you can see that yes, uh, as we would expect for the, in the case where we had uh, a very, that very, very high bathtub curve, infant mortality uh, was driving the majority of failures. So the shape parameter is less than one, which is what it, which means that we can uh, assume that there is an element of infant mortality. But for second and third lines, even though they're describing different scenarios, the shape parameters, shape parameters are relatively similar. And that's based on the line of best fit from the person doing the probability plot. And as a rule, you wouldn't, if, if you had a, a shape parameter of 1.18, you would not necessarily think that wear out failures are a huge issue. But in this example, over half of, your all, of all failures are caused by wear out. So this is an example of where looking at what a uh, plotting doesn't give you the entire picture. So you need to be really careful. As a rule, this is too close to one for anyone to to typically think, at least the way we are taught these days, to look at preventive maintenance or servicing. Even though 53% of failures are wear out, and regardless of industry, if half your things are failing due to wear out, you would most likely do something about it. So Weibull analysis is just the beginning. You need to understand why failures are occurring before uh, you can't just look at a Weibull plot and then assume you know everything there is to know. The Weibull plot is immensely useful for giving you the starting point for the next more uh, more physical or more scientific analysis. And because of this, if we just rely on Weibull plots for preventive maintenance interval uh, estimate, estimation, we often get ourselves in trouble. So let's go back to our, our scenario where we had that very high bathtub curve and where, th- where things were falling almost exclusively in region one. Surely this is something we don't observe in real life. That's not true, not even a little bit true. So these are the actual um, curves uh, for post servicing failure rates for an Australian military vehicle, which we did uh, an analysis on. Um, And you can see that these vehicles were, uh, the the bathtub curve caused by servicing was so high that virtually every failure was, was occurring in the in the region one or infant mortality area. So what we were able to do was by doing less preventive maintenance, we improved reliability by 23%. So we spent less money on maintaining the vehicles, and as a result, they failed less often. But while we, I'm am suggesting we look for nuances, and I'd also ask questions to if if there's any other questions. Sorry, before I move on, Fred, I want to ask if there's any questions that I've missed um that might be worth answering now
1: um there were a couple of them if you scroll down i think you answered the ones about the creation of the of the of the Weibull or the probability plotting paper and mm-hmm. the Weibull one a few people commented on techniques like median ranks and others um you're focusing only on the manual method <clears throat> but this translates the software right that the correct. really own difference is is how you draw that line. Um, if the computer does it using median ranks or maximum likelihood or
0: things like that. Correct. And uh, yeah, and I'm, I don't know if I'm getting I'm getting some audience questions at least. Uh, I don't know if I'm getting all of them through the through the chat box. But um, uh, yeah, that's correct. Uh, we're going to go uh, into how this relates to software tools that do uh, probability plotting. Um, and the median rank approach is covered in, in separate lessons as well. Sorry, Fred, did I miss something?
1: Um, no. And then I think you did. You see the one that had the somebody said if they go the first and last point, it's a bad fit.
0: I, uh, sorry. Yes. Uh, now I can see that. Okay. Yeah, so If you if you essentially choose two data points, obviously that's almost, uh, in a way, that's throwing away the 98 other data points. Uh, you don't simply just do the first and last one. And I'll, I'll cover, I'm going to address that question in greater detail and why that's a bad idea later on. I'm actually gonna have some diagrams. So I'll, I'll come back to that, Fred, if that's okay. All
1: right, good. And yeah, there. Are, one of the things that I'm gonna jump in just for a second, Chris, is sure. people mentioned the different software packages. Uh, years ago, a friend of mine and I had, we realized we had like six different uh, software packages that fit curves to do weibull plotting, basically. And so we shared a data set and we tried it on all six different packages and we got six different answers. They were similar, but different.
0: <laughs> I'm, I'm going to ask you to hold that thought because I'm going to address that very specifically too.
1: Okay, um, good. Good.
0: No worries. So but before I do that, I'm going to move on to... Uh, this little section which is trying not don't try and see things that aren't there. So I'm going to go back to the data points we had at the very the data set we had at the very start of the lesson. you can see here are the data points and I'm going to uh, draw your attention to these little what might be their own little straight lines here. Now just I, I've seen many people argue that plots that look like this, Uh, show almost definitively that we have a couple of little different sorts of failure modes or failure types in these regions over here because they create their own straight lines. Um, This data set was completely uh, randomly generated um, by a computer based on a Weibull distribution with a shape parameter of five and a scale parameter of two. So this is as let's say as pure as you can get for 100 data points. And these sorts of little perturbations are routinely seen in probability plotting, especially at small CDF values. What do I mean by that? Well, the small CDF values and the small, small random variable values are, the, are the, the values that occur at or close to the origin of your chart. And you can see here that going from 0.5 to 5% takes up a whole lot of real estate on your y-axis. As does going from 0.5 to 0.8 with respect to the horizontal axis, um, and we should also point out that this is a region that we're typically most interested in, because we're typically after things like time to 5% of our systems failing from, uh, for warranty stuff like and stuff like that, or we're typically interested in no more than 5% of our things failing uh, with respect to servicing intervals, so on and so forth. So we typically not interested in working out when most of our systems have failed. We're typically interested in finding out when a small enough tolerable uh, fraction have failed that then would initiate some, uh, us to do something about it. So this is almost the most important part of our probability plot. <clears throat> um, but there's inherent inaccuracies with, uh, with our plotting techniques. He, these are points which you put on a, on a chart but we're not gonna go through the mathematics now, but there is errors associated with estimating these CDF values. And if we go through the math, and if we try and work out what the size of these errors are and try and scale our dots accordingly, this is what we get. Coming through very soon, hopefully. So each one of these circles has now been scaled to represent the statistical inaccuracies of using that particular data point to estimate where our line on our probability plot needs to be simply because failure or whatever random process is random. And the reason why the, the one in the bottom left hand corner is so big is because of that scaling effect I told you about where a tiniest deviation from 0.5 to 1% is, uh, is about the same distance from 50 to 80% on our CDF curve. So when you're looking at uh, looking at these charts for lines, um, uh, you just need to understand that uh, each of these data points are themselves inaccurate. So hopefully this goes back to our question that somebody asked earlier about using the first and last data points and drawing a straight line between those two. Those data points are estimates of the uh, CDF value at that particular point in time. And hopefully you can see by the size of these circles that there is no such thing as a single data point. Those data points are themselves representing an estimate of the CDF at that point. So we need to always understand the confidence we have in our, in, in, on our results. And I can see a an uh, audience question which is a statement about which software package does things well. Well, we're going to start looking at what software packages can do for us. But because we are typically not interested in the line of best fit, we want to know uh, where the line is that represents our perhaps most conservative assessment of our time to failure or CDF curve. So we can put these data points in software and say, hey, software, tell us the region where you're 90% confident that the real line or real CDF curve goes through. And you should be able to see on your screen now the shaded region, which in this case is the 90% Confidence interval region. So we, when we we don't really want to get too fast about the line of best fit anymore. The line of best fit will help us understand if the underlying probability distribution is a good candidate for the for that particular for that particular random process. But once we've gone through that through that process, we really need to put confidence bounds on the analysis, and we can't do that uh, using the human brain. We certainly. Um, we certainly can can get software to give us these figures here, sorry, give us these confidence intervals, as as you can see here. And you can, again, the reason why they look curved is because of that scaling effect. So the the confidence interval region seems to be narrower at around this 50, 60% uh, region, which is where uh, you have big changes in the CDF value with minimal changes in, how far up the y-axis you go, but as you move further away, you have that scaling effect, which means the same step in any direction represents a huge change, a huge leap up and down your uh, up and down your y-axis. So your confidence increases as you have more more data or information. But here we go, Fred. You talked about uh, um, different software packages making tons of assumptions to try and give you these confidence bounds. So if we Take the same data set, put these numbers into a software package, you'll get this this confidence confidence uh, or confidence interval like this. And most of them are based most of ways that's sorry most software applications use an approach based on what we call a Fisher information matrix to create these uh, the, the, these this confidence interval region, which has about six different assumptions. Uh, which become weaker and weaker in certain areas. Now there is one way to work out what the, the true confidence bounds are, and this is what they, this is what the confidence bounds look like based on the likelihood function. In this case, I ran a 10 million Markov chain Monte Carlo simulation approach to get the true uh, confidence bounds for this data set here, um, and this is so accurate that with 10 million uh, simulations, that uh, that the discrepancies in in, in the boundaries of of this confidence interval with these dotted lines uh, would be tiny than a little little dot within each line itself. So this is what the confidence interval region looks like in practice compared to to what most most software applications uh, yield in response. And the reason why there's variations from different software packages from one software package to another is that they have different approaches different assumptions and different calculation steps to deal with those assumptions but things get worse the less information you have so let's just say you have four data points which is not a lot of information you use a fisher information matrix approach you get these confidence this this confidence interval region here which is truly horrific you can see here that the upper and lower confidence bounds actually have a negative slope, which is statistically impossible. It is impossible for the upper confidence bound on the CDF to decrease as time goes on. That's roughly analogous to uh, your product having a smaller chance of failure as you you use uh, use your product more and more often. So let's compare this horrific confidence interval region that software packages will give you with the true one. And this is what it looks like. So, if, um, and I'll answer a couple of questions in a, in a minute. I um, can see there's a couple of really relevant ones. So just hold on to those uh, that, and that desire to have the answer. Uh, you can see here that this is the true. Um, uh, the, the dotted lines represent the true confidence interval region. Again, using the same approach. So not only our, not only is our software confidence interval very Statistically invalid. You can't have things curving down; just not possible. But it's more—it's—it's it's wrong. It uh—it uh, it moves away from what the true confidence interval will be, and it, it introduces a lot more uncertainty. If we were able to get the true confidence values from the start, you can see that because those confidence bounds are a lot closer, those dotted lines are a lot closer together. We have a lot less uncertainty. So coming back to the um. Uh, coming back to the, the, the few questions, um, is, is Markov chain Monte Carlo uh, pretty much like the Fisher model? The answer is no. The Markov chain Monte Carlo uh, sim- simulation approach takes the raw likelihood function and uses that to create, uh, in this case, 10 million sample CDF lines, in which which we then use to create upper and lower confidence bounds. The Fisher information model. Uh, again, this might be going a little bit too nerdy, is uh, you create this model, which is uh, create a matrix, uh, which, uh, which different, uh, different uh, elements of that matrix are different second derivatives of the negative of the logarithm of the likelihood function. You take the inverse of that matrix and then it gives you uh, the, the uh, variance estimates for our um, parameters. And then most assumptions thereafter, so most software applications thereafter assume that we then use normal distribution to describe the likelihood function, so on and so forth, which is where all these errors and inaccuracies come from. The Fisher information matrix approach only works if the distribution you're modeling is a normal distribution. Again, that's a topic of an entirely entirely different lesson, but they're very different approaches one allows you to get uh, achieve whatever ac- accuracy you, you set out to achieve and the other, well, you really need to be careful. So the question I would ask everyone is if you're using software, do you know what assumptions your probability plotting software makes? And it's a very valid question because if we go back to our charts here, you can see that the region we're typically most interested in where up to 5% of our things have failed is the region where our confidence intervals go out the most. And it's, a confident, it's also the region where if there's going to be divergence from our software confidence interval region uh, with respect to the true confidence interval region, we tend to see it down in this region more than most others. And that's a problem. It's It's all well and good to say yes, for the majority of data points or the majority of our probability plot, they tend to overlap. Um, That's great. But we're typically only interested in the bits down near our origin. So I'm gonna go back to this one here. And you can see that we have, in this case, a lot more information, which is why there's a better overlap between the approximate confidence interval region and the true confidence interval region. But where there is discrepancy, it occurs down here, which is the money region for most products, most systems, most organisations. This is the area we care about the most. So on that note, uh, do you know what assumptions your probability plotting software makes? It's an open question. Um, It's something you need to be aware of. If If you have this the coding skills to do it, you can can potentially create your own code in in MATLAB or or something similar to really get the true confidence intervals for a a Weibull plot or any other sort of plot. And the good thing about that is they tend to, not only be more accurate, um, but they do away with the positive bias of of our software confidence interval region, which tends to overstate the unreliability. So a really easy way to improve the reliability or the apparent reliability of your system is to use true confidence interval region. It's more accurate and it's typically law. But on that note, I think I um, I must apologize, I sort of struggled to answer all the relay questions as we went through. Are there any further questions about probability plotting or is there anything you want to go back to and cover in greater detail? Is there anything coming through, Fred?
1: No, I don't see any at the moment. Um, if everybody a chance to hit their keyboard yep uh, so i mean we could go back to using probability plotting paper right uh although the software if you've got enough data i think goes back to that question on sample size right mm-hmm. so was, uh, one thought was my thought was is if you have 20 uh failures or 20 data points essentially um is that enough or how does that I'm going with the assumption that more is better, but I'm I'm making an assumption there.
0: Well, I would agree with that. So I'm gonna go back to um, this chart here. If we focus on the the dotted lines, which are the true confidence interval, which is a true confidence interval region um, for uh, for our plot. uh, You can see that the distance between the upper and lower uh, confidence band is relatively small. If we then go to the example where we only had four data points. Again, asking asking everyone to look at um, the dotted lines here, which are the true confidence bounds. You can see there's a big, uh, big spread across the confidence interval region, especially down here around the around the five percent of uh, product failure mark. So, how much data is enough? Well, it depends what your risk tolerance is, because you might have four data points. But, and that creates a huge confidence in a whole region, but because those four data points they might represent unbelievably good reliability characteristics, they might surprise you, they could be failures that occurred so far beyond what you expected to, to get or to observe that the lower confidence band is actually pretty good. So it's all about your confidence in your results. So the question about how many data points on you need to have is a relatively open-ended question. If the reliability performance of your product is somewhat close to your requirements or specifications, you need to have more data because you need to bring that confidence way in um, because they're relatively close. But if the performance greatly exceeds your requirements or specification, then you can do it, do it with less um, data because even though there's greater unconf- sorry, less confidence, it's so far beyond your requirement that that's okay. That, that brings us back to testing as well. You can really drive down test requirements if you make really reliable stuff. So there's a question, a couple of questions coming through. Um, uh, Let's see, oh, there's a lot of questions now. Um, Are there any other ways to obtain the confidence interval of And The answer is yes, there's tons of ways, but there's realistically only one real way of doing it. And that is, uh, there's no theoretical solution to the likelihood function that the Weibull distribution creates for for data. You have to use a numerical evaluation approach like Markov chain Monte Carlo simulation. But beyond that, as Fred suggested, each different software package has a ton of different assumptions and approximations that the technical answer to your question is yes, there's tons of different ways of estimating the confidence interval region. There's only one way of doing it well. Uh, what software do you think is most accurate most of the time? Um, that's a good question, and I don't have a good answer for that one. I think, Freddie, you've already already anointed that one as a good good question. Um, and the, the reality is, me personally, I don't use uh, software like uh, commercial software for the reasons I just talked about. I, I can go in and use my uh, create my own code, and I've already got my own programs that do this that give you the exact um, confidence bounds, regardless. So um, that's the that's the way I go about it. So I don't have a ton of experience with these software packages because I, I'm aware of their inherent inaccuracies. Um, another question, there's so many models out there, uh, MLE, MLE reducer, bias inspection modes, so on and so forth. Uh, yes, there are, uh, but some of those aren't actually models themselves. For example, maximum likelihood estimation that means you find that that helps you find the the uh, line of best fit based on the most likely set of parameters. So these aren't necessarily models. Uh, the, the ones you you put up here aren't. They? I wouldn't call them as call them models. Some of them are approximation approaches. Um, but there is only one model in this case, and it's based on what we call the likelihood function and how we use that likelihood function to create our um, to create our our confidence interval region. Uh, another question, do I need special software to find the true confidence estimates or can I use something like Weibull++? Plus uh, Plus? answer is Weibull++ can't do it. Uh, one of the reasons is, is uh, they like repeatability in, in, their, in, the, in the confidence intervals and what I mean by that is the same data you put in on Tuesday, you put the same data in on Thursday, it spits at the same approximate confidence, confidence interval values and technically the numerical approach you need to specify an accuracy for these confidence bounds, but the reality is they all use, uh, Reliasoft in particular, uses the Fisher information uh, uh, matrix approach or approximation. In fact, they have on their website, the theoretical um, explanation of how they make these approximations to create confidence interval regions. Would you mind, another question is, would you mind commenting on the pros and cons of libel plotting using times of failure when you're working with repairable systems, repairing to be as good as new? Okay, so what you're talking about there is, that'll be a question that I could, knowing we only have a couple of minutes left, That's a question that could be an entirely new webinar in itself, you're talking about a repairable system or a renewal process, in which case you use uh, a non-homogeneous Poisson process model. Now, if I'll go back to uh, the example uh, for the military vehicles, I actually used that approach um, to model uh, this vehicle over here, which was repairable, and because the the event of interest over here on the, well times of failure is, is set at zero, is where we serviced it, and all these, are, all these dots over here represent failure points as we move from left to right. So you need to use a non-homogeneous Poisson process model, and I would suggest perhaps you could, uh, if you want to email me after this, I can have a more detailed conversation with you after that. Uh, are there any other ways to obtain the confidence interval of Weibull? I think I've answered that one. Could you could use chi-square, but again, a chi-square is uh, chi-square. Uh, distribution, for those of you who don't know, is used to approximate the deviation of the estimate of the mean of a random variable who's, uh, that is described by the normal distribution. So essentially uh, the chi-square is based on an, on an assumption that the deviation or the confidence intervals region is described by a Bell curve, uh, which is not always true. Um, are there studies on what sort of simulations can give the most accurate bounds? Or it also depends on the type of data, uh, so on and so forth. Well, I'm not not sure I follow the question because the the uh, and I may have given a a, a, the term simulation can be a little bit scary, uh, but MCMC is for all all intents and purposes Markov chain Monte Carlo simulation. For all intents and purposes, is the act is precisely accurate. If you want to get it down to 10 microns, if you want to get to your, the final answers, uh, uh, the confidence bound estimates within, you know, a millionth of, of 1% from the true value, you just simply do more simulations. So you keep throwing simulations, keep throwing simulations until you know the accuracy is within a pixel of the line on your screen, and that's how you get for the uh, that's how you get the true confidence bounds. Uh, there is also a difference on complexity and price of software. Some of them are more expensive. That is true, but not really related to accuracy. I would agree. And often you are paying for functionality, such as being able to import data or having that uh, software package integrate with another, another set, uh, another data, another software suite. Um, so another you know, audience question. Good idea for a webinar. Non-homogeneous person uh, process model. Brad. We'll take note of that one, and I see that a lot of people are saying thank you and au revoir. So I sense people need to go back to their lives, and the number of questions coming in or wearing out, uh, sorry, trickling down. So before I, before we say you know, lose everyone, thank you very much for taking the time to to uh, to uh, listen to me rabbit on about probability plotting, and if uh, if there is any more information, any more any further questions, please do not hesitate to ask. Uh, there, Another question came up about uh, materials. Yes, slides will be available on Ascender Reliability very, very soon, if not already. Um, so yes, but please do not hesitate to contact me directly. Or email me if you've got any further questions because probability plotting is one of the things that we assume is perfect, we assume is already done, Is it, we assume is a, is a, is a, a, a a, a process that we know intimately, but I don't think we do. And we are doing ourselves a disservice as reliability engineers. But are there any last questions, Fred, that's all I've missed? Um,
1: no, lots of thanks. Very helpful, very informative. Uh, that kind of stuff's coming through. So I think you're getting the round of applause at the moment here.
0: <laughs> that's right. <laughs> so we're busy. We need to go away and do other things now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah which I understand.
1: Yeah, No. All right, well, cool. Thanks so much, Chris. And uh, do you have a plan for what your next webinar is gonna be next month?
0: I have a couple, I have a short list and I will be announcing that shortly.
1: All right, cool. And we'll look forward to that. So thanks everybody for bearing with us. Uh, There was a little bit of audio trouble at the start for some. And uh, so hopefully everybody that got it sorted and brought in. Uh, We need to fix the chat window. I don't know why that's not working. So I've got a call into support to uh, sort that out and make cuz that's usually a big part of how we do our webinars And so we'll see if we can get that fixed and so with that chris i think we'll we'll close it off and we'll talk to you um, uh, in a couple of weeks when i do a webinar not as as beautiful of graphics though so i'm i, I got to up my game a little bit uh, but we'll we'll see you uh, next month for your next webinar and we'll watch for the uh, the announcements thanks again chris
0: thank you very much thanks for joining us Mm -hmm. Mm Blla